0: If you look at most of the managers today, a big portion of the managers age 40 plus, either in mid-management or senior management position, they're a byproduct of industrial age thinking. Now, if you take industrial age thinking, it was all around beating you with a stick, sometimes giving you a carrot, and if they didn't like you, they beat you with a carrot as well. And what you tend to find now is that there's a totally different... Group of people coming into the workforce, and they're not putting up with that anymore. So we've got like, we're, we're in between two worlds at the moment, two time spans, where so many people are just not engaged because the people that are leaving them can't speak their language. You're
1: listening to the Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Baloo and Michael Palmer.
2: Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. I'm your other co-host, Michael Palmer. And boy, do we have an exciting episode lined up for you today. We have as our guest, the world's number one transition coach. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only Peter Buchla. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. So Peter, we got to know you through our mutual friend, David Sargent. And he said, you got to have Peter on the show. He's fantastic. So I said, all right, that sounds great. Let's get Peter on the show. So tell us, tell us your backstory. How is it that you've gotten to where
0: you are today? How did I get into coaching? I think I got into coaching very much like a lot of people do. Coaching is a very interesting industry. So I had a corporate background, like a number of people, You come to a crossroads in your life. What do you do? Didn't want to do the corporate stuff anymore. Needed to have a change. And at the time, it just coaching came along. For some strange reason, I was looking at other corporate jobs, but the whole coaching arena was quite new back then. The opportunity came along. I quite liked the idea of actually working with businesses and helping them grow, helping people out. It kind of appealed to me and it also appealed to me to be my own boss. Okay, so tell us a bit about your
2: crossroads. What, what exactly happened that had you say, I'm not on the right path
0: anymore? Do you know what it was? I, I think you worked for a company for a period of time, and eventually, I mean, I've been working for them since the age of 16. So, I mean, they had me from 16 to about 34. And eventually, you just get to the point where, is that all you're going to do with your life? Mm. I wasn't overly, I wasn't feeling where the company was going i didn't particularly like the way it was being managed and i kind of to a degree probably was quite an awkward customer to work with and it was a point where there something needed to change it was i wasn't happy health-wise and to a degree i felt a little bit bored it was the same old same old so that was a crossroad it had to be something else and i always quite liked the idea of being my own boss don't get me wrong i was absolutely petrified of being my own boss. I did like the idea of being my own boss. You know, I
2: can totally relate to that. Uh, my story is your story, and I think it's the story uh, uh, of pe- people that listen to this podcast. It, we know that deep inside us is a purpose, a mighty purpose, a dent that oh. we're intended to make in the universe, and we're not going to make that dent if we keep living someone else's dream. And, and that's really what
0: you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not just living somebody else's dream, but it's often following other people's direction that you do not believe to be true. Hmm. Powerful.
1: Well, say more about that. I think that's an interesting one for many of our listeners who may be
0: people who who are still in that pre-story. Yeah. Okay. So what I mean by that. Is, you know, as you move through a corporate career, you have different bosses. Hmm. And there's nothing worse than having a boss that is a total idiot.
2: No, I've never had that.
0: (laughs) And you're being told blatantly to do stuff that you know is inherently wrong. And sometimes there comes a point where you just cannot follow blindly. It's demoralizing. And unfortunately, in corporate positions, there have been times where there's loads of times where people get promoted on merit, where you know their achievements are valid and they're a phenomenal individual, truly deserve their success. And from time to time, you just get people that are promoted because either their face fits or they happen to be in the right place at the right time. They don't necessarily have the leadership skills necessary. And unfortunately, I've seen it too often where leaders are promoted, especially in the SME industry, where people are promoted that shouldn't have been promoted. And unfortunately, it has devastating consequences.
1: I, I agree. I, th- I think it, it reminds me of a stat that was an American stat. It was it was done in the United States, but 75% of people were unsatisfied with their managers and 25% of managers did not like their jobs. So what does that tell you? <laughs> it's like the people who actually, uh, 75, so only 25% of managers dislike their job, but yet 75% of the people that they lead are dissatisfied with them, and there's another interesting statistic, and I don't know the exact number, but the amount of sociopaths that are actually in leadership positions—it's—it's it's crazy. But I mean, it's not—it's not surprising because the people who uh, rise to the top typically are the people who take those risks and you know, don't care about what other people think, so they're willing to, to keep moving forward and doing what they have to do to to rise up in, the, in, the, in the, the organization. However, that has a huge impact on the health of that organization.
0: Absolutely. And what's quite interesting, if you take that whole era, we're at an interesting crossroads right now. Because up to 2003 marked the end of the industrial age. If you look at most of the managers today... A big portion of the managers age 40 plus, either in mid management or senior management position, they're a byproduct of industrial age thinking. Now, if you take industrial age thinking, it was all around beating you with a stick, sometimes giving you a carrot, and if they didn't like you, they beat you with a carrot as well. And what you tend to find now is that there's a totally different group of people coming into the workforce. And they're not putting up with that anymore. So we've got like, we're, we're in between two worlds at the moment, two time spans, where so many people are just not engaged because the people that are leading them can't speak their language. It's very
2: true. And you know, there was a book written um, about uh, 11 years ago called Snakes in Suits When Psychopaths Go to Work. So. Michael was talking about that. Two researchers, Dr. Paul Babiak and Robert something or another, I, I, I forget his name right now, but they, they talk about how these folks who are in the corporate world, who have basically no concern for other people, are able to get ahead because they've got some talent and they don't mind who they step on to get to the next level. And that's a little bit of what you've talked about, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. And you know what the worst thing about it? Very often in corporate life, that behavior is actively encouraged because it's all about the balance sheet. It's all about the bottom line. And unfortunately, along that journey, people are expendable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the other issue. I mean, certainly in an area that I've worked in, which is sales, there's some people that are good salespeople, but then get promoted into management. They don't have any management skills. And people think because they were able to do the job, they also have skills to manage other people to do the job. And that isn't true.
0: Correct? That is so correct. And you know what? Even in my corporate life, very often we took the best performers and we thought we'd do them a massive favor. Let's reward you by promoting you. And very often... They didn't have the aptitude or skill set needed for that next level. And very often, they didn't have the empathy needed to do that job. They ended up becoming really awful managers. And if you've ever seen The Office with David Brent, it's a UK sitcom. That kind of management style was so typical. And what you ended up doing was you ended up burning your best performer because they became your worst manager you can't put someone back in a previous position. Their position became an, untenable. Not only did you lose a great salesperson, but then you lost a lot of the team with it.
1: Yeah, it happens. It happens often and it and, and the satisfaction on all fronts is just not there. The people who are put into those positions are, they they're not no longer performing, they're dissatisfied, the people they lead are dissatisfied, and it's a huge impact on the productivity of that organization. So you've, you've gone away from that and now you coach people and, and I'd really like to learn about how, what that journey has looked like for you in growing
0: your coaching practice. Oh, man. Well, I, tell you, I mean, I've been coaching now for 12 years. And to be brutally honest, I think the beginning was probably the most awful time in my life. Because like anything, when you're working in the corporate, well, you have all that structure around you. You have all those people to bounce off. All of a sudden, you become a solopreneur. You start a career that is absolutely new to you. No one knows who you are. You have no reputation in that industry. To be honest with you, it's tough getting clients. I think that's the biggest thing i found with the coaching industry. You have so many people in the coaching industry, but very few survive. Because very few make it to the point where they can sufficiently build up a client base sufficiently learn their coaching skills to become competent at what they do. most people go broke before they have any kind of traction. so yeah the, the beginning days when I first started by no means they were they were tough and I would probably first two years I did question myself had I done the right thing in all fairness probably the first two years as I was coaching I was still seeking another corporate position, Because I thought, okay, do you know what? It was probably the easier thing to do at the time. So yeah, the beginning was pretty tough. But like anything, if you're prepared to work at it, you get yourself some traction, you start building a reputation, you start to become good at what you do, eventually the life starts to change. And I've been one of the fortunate, I mean, I've been very fortunate as a coach. I've done very well as as a coach. I've got a really strong client base, a really great client base, and it's allowed me to go and develop as a coach, I wouldn't do anything else right now. You know when you talk about finding your calling, making that impact, making that dent on the universe? Yes. Coaching is my ability to make that dent on that universe.
2: I love it. So what is it that had you go from this newcomer to being somewhat of an expert? We have this this piece of intellectual property we've developed, Michael and I, called the stages of the thought leader's journey. And the, the first, what you were just describing is the first stage in it, which is what we call the newcomer stage. And someone who's new to this and is excited but frightened. They're excited because, you know, they're doing something that, uh, uh, calls to their soul's purpose, but they're also frightened because they're not necessarily getting traction or making enough money. And, and it sounds like that's where you were. You were in the newcomer stage for a good couple of years. What had Absolutely. you be able to transition out of that phase into more of the uh, the next phase, which we call the unconscious expert, and then even the the phase after that, which we call the conscious expert?
0: I had to make a choice. I had to be prepared to leave my corporate life behind me and just and say, okay, I'm never going there. Mm. And I had to take I had to turn the job into a career. I needed a career path. I needed a journey that I could go on. It wasn't about change, exchanging time for money, but if I was going to do something, because in in corporate land, you've got a very clear career path. Therefore, you understand what excellence truly is, and if you really are ambitious, You can go on that journey of of sort of pursuing excellence and getting yourself promoted. I needed to work out what that getting promoted for me would look like. And I got exposed to people like Marshall Goldsmith. And I thought, you know what? And at the time, he was like considered to be the world's number one coach in his particular sphere. sphere. And I thought, you know what? I need to become great at what I do. I don't know what that journey looks like, but I can't just be a coach. If I want to be a coach, I must be a great coach. And that was the decision I made. I just didn't want to be one of the huge number of coaches out there. I wanted to be the coach that made a dent. And that was my decision. That was the, that's what, when I made that decision, I started my journey.
1: It's very interesting, and I love the, that point that you made that decision. What did that journey look like? How did you actually then become great at what you do as a coach?
0: I made the conscious decision to hang around all the best people. So within my coaching network, I hung around all the top coaches, the ones that were best. Whenever I was in other networks, I would hang around the best people. I mean, it was quite cheeky. At the time, I was nowhere near their level. But I didn't want to learn from the people that were not doing it. So that's all I did. I just kept seeking the people that were much better than me, and I would just learn. And whether it would be coaches I was learning from or thought leaders, I would always just see what I could pick up from other people. And then I would say, okay, the stuff I wanted to keep, I'd keep. The stuff that didn't quite fit for me, I let go. And that was my journey. And for the last six, seven years, for the last seven years, I've consciously invested 100,000 UK pounds in my education every single year.
1: It's remarkable.
0: It's, and it's a, it's a big amount, but I decided I was my most valuable asset.
2: We'll be right back with the rest of our interview with today's guest. Welcome to another segment of Strategies for Growing Your Business. Michael, today we're going to talk about clarity in your ideal target market. So why is it important to have a clear, well-targeted market niche, Michael? The number one reason, in my opinion,
1: is that how can you be an expert in a general market? I mean, there's people inside of a market, a narrow market, narrow niche, that have unique problems. And the, the more you are actually great at solving those unique problems, the more likely you'll be known in that market. So whilst you could be well-known throughout the world for a general message or a general thing that you do, and there are people like that, the work that it takes to get there and the amount of investment you'd need to make and the, and the marketing and the branding and all of that, it would take a very long time and maybe produce very few results. Whereas if you go narrow, we're talking about a lot less people. We're talking about being able to be real expert in that problem that, that you're solving for them. And you ab- you're able to actually
2: re- find them and reach them. Find them and reach them. That's powerful. You know, Michael, you know, one of the things I've been passionate about inside my uh, commercial PhD is is men and helping men and and, uh, doing stuff for men. And I've been thinking about, how do I help men? I want to do stuff for men. But when I started to focus on not just all men, but separated fathers, specifically separated fathers whose wives have left them, because that's an experience that I had it became a lot easier to find those folks than men. And it it became a lot easier to aim my message at a separated father whose wife has left him because I understand that man's pain points. I understand that he feels like he's lost his mojo, like he's a failure, like he's a loser because I felt all those things and I can target my messaging toward this man and I can be of real service to this man because I've taken my market and I've narrowed it. Isn't that right, Michael? Absolutely. And you're more likely to do service for them because you
1: actually know what you're doing. You can spend all of your time focused on being the very best on the planet at solving those problems for those men. Whereas if you were working with all men, well, you'd be okay at solving a bunch of the problems, but you
2: wouldn't be great. And what people want in this day and age is great. They want great. They don't want okay or good or mediocre. They want great. And then There's Dan Nisker, our good buddy Dan Nisker. Dan Nisker was a trainer, bussing it all over town, making $2,000 a month, so less than $25,000 a year. And then all of a sudden he starts focusing on people with missing limbs. He was inspired by David Vibora from the Starbucks Upstanders video. And his business takes off because he's focused on folks with missing limbs. He's a dealer in hope. That's a David Vibora phrase, by the way, A Dealer in Hope. That's a new book he's got coming out. So Dan has become a dealer in hope to people in Canada with missing limbs, and his business has gone from less than $2,000 a month. Th- this fellow's probably going to make three quarters of a million to a million dollars this year just from this shift alone.
1: Yeah, it's remarkable, and it's very... Potent and it, it, it it's not like it happened overnight for Dan. Dan tried a whole bunch of different markets. He tried different angles and it took him a long time. He failed a lot, but then he found it. And when he found it, it stuck and it and it delivers an incredible result for these people. And they pay him really well for the work that he does, and he delivers a great service.
2: Well said, well said. And now let's go back to the rest of our interview with today's guest.
1: Well, that's it. You invested You invested in yourself, and Nikki and I both have invested similar amounts into our business and, and our personal development over the years. Not only do we live happier, more fulfilling lives, but we're better at what we do, and we're able to do cool things that a lot of other people look at and say, Oh, gee, you know, if, you know I'd love to do that, But and I'm sure some of your peers do the same for you. But it's not rosy, as you've already mentioned. It's not rosy, but it takes time, and when you invest in yourself... You're the product, you're the, the company and and in the future, you expect to have that return. And I think it's a, a powerful message of surrounding yourself with people who are actually doing it and the people that are successful. I think a lot of people look at others in the industry and say, "Oh well, that's a competitor. you know, I have to figure out my own path. And I, if you look at all the great leaders, business leaders, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, I mean, they're not out there inventing the new business model. They're out there looking at what's working and capitalizing on what's working and improving. So it's taking what's already great and making that better. I think that is a fast-track success move that you've brought to the table. What have you seen in terms of uh, the mistakes that other coaches are making in the marketplace?
0: I think there's a couple of mistakes. Number one, they operate in isolation. So many many coaches operate by themselves, not talking to anybody else, no other frame of reference. And the reality is when you're in business, it can be a very lonely place. A lot of entrepreneurs are lonely because they don't have other people to bounce off of. And it's the same with coaches. And what happens is when things don't quite go well for them, they end up getting themselves into a negative spiral because they've got no one to share with and that eventually ends up killing them. And the second biggest thing I find with coaches is scarcity. There seems to be this scarcity mindset for so many people that there isn't enough work out there. And just to give you some statistics, in the UK, we have 5.6 million SMEs, so privately owned, small to mid-sized enterprises. Now, you take that 5.6 million, we've only got 10,000 coaches in the UK. Now, if Each coach had 20 clients, which is a stretch for most coaches, to be honest. If each had 20 clients, we couldn't even service the market. We wouldn't even be a dent in the market. So when people think, okay, well, there's not enough business out there, there is an abundance of business out there. There is more than anyone can handle. But it's that scarcity mentality of no business. I've just done an interview last week with Michael Lozier, and he's all about the law of attraction. Yeah, I know, about I know him well. Yeah, well, Michael and I were talking about it, and it's all about the vibration bubble. And their vibration bubble is scarcity, because so I guess what they get? Exactly what they don't want. It's crazy. So I'd say it's those two things are the mistakes that coaches make. That's,
1: that's, uh, that's fantastic. Now, in terms of your go-to-market strategy and how you've been able to become known and Taken up some of this uh, large amount of SMEs that you're targeting. What is what has been
0: your most fruitful move? My most fruitful move has been building a referral based business, a reputation-based business. So basically getting my clients on board, taking really good care of them, getting them to where they want to be, helping them achieve their sort of ambitions, their goals, their aspirations, and getting them to introduce me to their friends. So what's your referral strategy? Walk us through it. I I don't have a referral strategy. You see, what I do is I believe in giving. So I always give my clients. So I always make sure that I service them properly. But when they need things, I make sure I'm the connector. I'm always putting them in contact with other people. I am always going out to give. And the nice thing about doing all the giving is that they then feel very much and I wouldn't say the word obligated, but they do feel, okay, do you know what? I want to give back to Peter. So as much as I, as I go to take care of them, they then want to take care of me. Yeah. And that's my referral strategy. I never ever buy anybody. So I don't say, okay, do you know what? For every referral you, you give me, I'll give you a 1000 bucks or whatever. I don't believe in that. If you want to give me a referral, if you want to introduce me to somebody close to you, I appreciate that. But you've got to want to do that. I don't, want to, I don't want somebody that you say, okay, well, I'll put this person in front of you because I can make a quick buck out of it. Because I, ultimately, my circle is a very sort of protected circle. I'm very fortunate I get to hang out with people that I love hanging out with. So there's a whole law of attraction. All my clients are pretty similar. They've got the same core value set, similar interests. So it doesn't really feel like you're working, it just feels like you're hanging out. So as much as sort of corporations talk about having a bad hire, I would never want a bad hire as a client because that's toxic for both parties. You know what, that's powerful.
2: It's very powerful, Peter, though. Your, your referral strategy is the law of generosity. Hmm. But it works. Yeah, it's brilliant. Peter, we like to wrap up every interview by asking our guest, which in this case is you, what are your top three expert action steps that you recommend our listener use in order to take their business, their life,
0: to the next level? So number one, a business owner is, whether it's a coach, whether it's a business owner in a corporate, whatever, They are always, if they're not careful, going to be the glass ceiling. Too often I see entrepreneurs being the limiting factor in their business. If you want your business to grow, you must grow. So right now we are in the knowledge worker age. It's all about the information we have. The more information we have, the better decisions we make, the more wealth we create. So I would say number one, is you need to make sure that you are a learning person. So that's the first thing I will do. Number two, always surround yourself with better people than yourself. Again, one of the challenges I see with entrepreneurs is the ego kind of kicks in and they want to be the top of their tree. They want to be the alpha. No, do you know, I, was, I just spent, this year I'm, I was fortunate enough to spend a week on Necker Island with Richard Branson cool and the one and the one thing that sir richard always does he said it he said it openly he always says it openly i surround myself with people that are better than me That doesn't mean that they're better entrepreneurs but they're better at doing the stuff he's never going to do so if you want to scale your business if you want to grow your business you need to have that great team around you learn how to attract learn how to recruit learn how to retain top talent And the third one is make sure that you have a network of people around you that encourage you, support you, and cheer you on with your goals and aspirations. Too often we have people in our networks, in our lives, unfortunately jealousy does play a part in a lot of it. A lot of people do not want to see other people do well because that means that that person moves further away from them. If you have a great network of people around you that are pushing you, supporting you to achieve your goals, it becomes a lot easier than if you have people in your ear telling you that this is not possible, that's not possible, you can't do this, you can't do that. We don't need that in life. We need people in life that can tell us how we can do things, and of course it can be done. We may not always know how to do it, but you take you take your people like Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, they don't wake up in the morning with a great bunch of people in their life saying, no, you can't do that today. All their people are encouraging them. Of course you can. And what happens? These geniuses create phenomenal things.
2: That's very powerful. Those are three excellent expression steps. And you know, the very last one, here, here's one thing we believe, that your loved ones shouldn't be your peer group. And the reason for that is that they don't necessarily have the same ambition, the same uh view to get out there and be an entrepreneur and make a dent in the universe. Their job is to be your loved ones your wife your your husband your your kids your 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 mom your dad, your cousins, your best friends, your peer groups, your peer group, your loved ones are your loved ones, and the two are not necessarily the same thing, and in fact usually are not the same thing so I completely agree with you when you say that you need to have the right people around you and don't be around toxic people, but if people don't uh, are, are frightened and they, they're part of your family about your success, the answer to me isn't to cut them off. The answer is you know love them, but bring your business talk- conversations to your peer group. That kind of people, they're going to uh, encourage you and move you forward. And that's why you shouldn't do it alone. And that's another thing that you said, and I really think that's very powerful. And we believe in that very much as well. And that's why we've created the whole ecosystem around the the Business of Thought Leadership podcast and our community um, in North America to, to help people do that. So thank you for doing that. Peter, at this point, is there something that you would like to promote, tell the folks
0: about? There won't be something that I want to promote, but... The one thing I would say to all the folks listening in, especially those in business, is do not think you have to do it alone. There is so much help out there. Whether it's going to be a business coach or whatever, if you've got your aspirations and your dreams out there, go and find the catalyst that can help you get there a lot quicker. Because there's no point spending your life struggling Making stupid mistakes and then saying, Well, I'll learn from my mistakes when you don't have to make them in the first place. I'm a firm believer just like you. You've got your podcast. I do my YouTube channel. I do my podcast for one simple reason just to give back so that people in this world can get on and achieve their dreams. Because I totally believe one thing if you're ever going to eradicate poverty, the only way you're going to do it is through business.
2: 100% so the more agree.
0: educated business owners we, are, we have out there that are employing people, creating wealth for other people, the quicker we get rid of poverty.
2: 100% agree. Uh, 100% agree. Well, thank you. So, you know, Peter, you're you're uh, far too modest, so I'll do it for you. If you want to find out about Peter's work, go to his website, Bookla bookla com. He's got a YouTube channel. He's got a podcast. We're going to have all those in the show notes. And uh, check out Peter's work. It's powerful stuff. Thank you so much for being on the show, Peter. It's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. Michael, Peter Bukai, amazing guy. I was really, really impressed with uh, his wisdom, his humility, his journey is so similar to my journey, and your journey, and the journey of uh, uh, of anyone listening to this podcast.
1: Absolutely, I absolutely love the last one that he shared around making mistakes. How common, you know, common, common conversation is. Oh, you learn from your mistakes, but had me think of. The levels of mistakes. You want to be making level ten mistakes, not level one mistakes, because the level ten mistakes, they they have a lot more zeros attached to them, right? <laughs> so I think it was great advice. And don't don't, you know, all the listener out there, do not do this alone. There's so many people like Peter, uh, like Nikki and I in our community that are are wonderful people, very supportive and
2: wanna see you succeed. The enemy, Michael, is doing it alone. You know, Absolutely. That's, our, our good friend Donald Miller says that in the story brand. You have to have a, a villain that your brand uh, defeats. The villain that we defeat is don't do it alone. Don't do <laughs> it alone. Yes, absolutely. That wraps
1: another episode of the Business of Thought Leadership podcast. To learn more about today's wonderful guest and to get all sorts of free business building resources, you can go to thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to the Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening.